Hey listeners, it's a new year, and you know what that means. Another What's Next in Learning town hall from Getting Smart. On our most recent What's Next in Learning, we covered the three drivers that we are currently responding to in the education sector. The pandemic response, new pathways, and AI everywhere. On this event, we drill into each of these drivers, talking about how pandemic response, the broader learning ecosystems, learner agency, teacher pipelines, and parent engagement continue to shape our education system. In New Pathways, we think about how accelerated pathways, competency, skills, and credentials, and higher education are really reshaping what we think about when we say the word pathways. And of course, generative AI and Web3 are reshaping AI as we speak. We hope you'll give this conversation a listen and let us know what trends we're missing. All right, let's jump in. talk about the three main drivers or three main drivers um, over the next hour. And that is centered around the pandemic response, new pathways, and AI everywhere. The, the pandemic exposure really showed us the importance of giving students agency. Like they have to feel engaged. We knew it, but then now we saw it in real time. And it wasn't just us who saw it. The parents saw it and the other stakeholders saw it. And we learned that grades just aren't the best measure of learning and that stress was real. And before there were so many things that contributed to the stress, but now we got to see that school was also a critical issue as to why students were stressed. Um, so we'll talk more about that. We'll also talk about the perception of higher ed because things are declining. People aren't going to college like they used to. People aren't necessarily seeing the value, right, wrong, indifferent. That's what's happening. Um, and so just the affordability of it all, the college um, value in the way that people saw it dropped by like 14 percentage points since 2020. So, and there's no necessarily uh, trajectory of going back up. And so we'll, we'll talk about what that looks like and how that's going to affect education moving forward. And then lastly, the technological innovations. There are more hybrid options than ever. Um, the pandemic necessitated that we had to think differently. And so parents and students aren't necessarily okay with going backwards. Um, they saw the things that were working for their students and some of those resulted in pods and microschools and things of that nature. So we'll dig into that as well. Like Tom mentioned, the chat GPT, the immersive experiences, the AI exposure that's happening, more advanced learning analytics. School is not the same. And so how do we deal with those changes? How do we embrace those changes? And how do we help our teachers, students, parents, and other stakeholders be okay with those as well? So Tom, I will turn it over to you to continue to get us started. Thanks for a great overview, Shawnee. Um, we'll spend uh, the first third of our time together talking about uh, how things are uh, different post-pandemic, a little bit of pandemic hangover, but also some intentional responses, both in uh, K-12 and higher education. Then we'll talk about uh, some trends in, in the new pathway space. Um, the Getting Smart community knows that we have been focused on new pathways um, for the last year, and we're seeing some interesting new movement there in both high school and college uh, that we'll talk about. And then we'll close with, uh, with some of the tech trends um, it, I think it was really true and by 2018 that every sector was computational and that 
machine learning and as Shani said, data analytics were, um, had become part of life and work in every sector. But in December, um, may, maybe starting in, in October with um, AI, with Lenza and uh, the, the AI created images, but uh, in December with Jet, Chat GPT, we, we just have witnessed the fastest introduction uh, of a new capability in, in human history. And um, it's uh, Nate's going to talk about some of the implications for, uh, for new technologies and learning. All right. So we're going to start with broader learning ecosystems. Um, so it's interesting to see in chats the, the, some of the trends that people are identifying for the next year. And, and I, I, really, I, I really see passion and purpose, this idea of what is purposeful learning, what are solutionaries, and then this other tie to assessment. And I think broader learning ecosystems is enabling both of those things. So I, I, we're, we're seeing more and more unbundled learning. Uh, as we all know, education, when it first started, uh, when first formal education started, it was always unbundled. And then we bundled it together. Uh, and now we're seeing that that relevance is important and how do we get students doing things that they actually might do once they get out of school is critically important. So uh, organizations like OutSchool blossomed during the pandemic and there's many, many, many more that have offered out of ecosystem or, or out of the traditional ecosystem into an expanded broader learning ecosystem. So this interest in real world learning, uh, the, the idea of apprenticeships, work-based learning, internships, um, really formally really only sitting in the CTE world has now expanded to say everybody needs these types of experience in real world learning. And so uh, uh, Kauffman, Kansas City, the real world learning uh, work that, that we've been involved with there, and then many other examples around the country where, where especially at the secondary level, uh, everyone is saying we need to get students out into the world doing real things. And that in turn has brought project-based learning from the more margins of education into the center. And so project-based learning has become more and more important because again, in the real world, most students are doing things in a project-based learning way. So the other trend that we're seeing within broader learning ecosystems is that uh, policies and funding are changing. And so the idea of learn everywhere um, type legislation, so New Hampshire started it, but then North Dakota and, and um, uh, Colorado and others have followed to say, how can we count things in a secondary program that happen outside of school? So there's a there's a numerous policies and then funding that's associated with it. So I, I copied something, a headline from the 74 yesterday that some of you probably saw of that is that especially on uh, the more right leaning political states is that ESA funding, uh, micro grants and all other all their sorts of in-system tools to backpack funding to students so that they can do some of these out of out of um, system uh, experiences. And so. The challenge to, to to districts, public districts, is how do we how do we mirror that so so that the funding stays within the public district, but we offer the opportunities that say show up in micro schools and pods. And so an example of that is is Con World School and ASU Prep, uh, the, the partnership there to, to create Con World School, where they're thinking about how do you take an online, very real world type experience and then embed it inside a district to mimic a micro school that's that's in partnership with an outside provider. Uh, My Tech High is another example of that, is how do we provide these opportunities in districts so, the, the, so the, the majority of students and not just a minority of students can experience these. So uh, that's what we're seeing for broader learning ecosystems. And I'm going to turn it over to Shawnee to talk about learner agency. Yeah, thanks, Nate. And we, you know, I mentioned it in the beginning, how the pandemic just continues to emphasize, continue to emphasize 
the importance of learner agency and not just for purposes of to check it off the list but because the goal of learning is truly to become lifelong learners. And we need to help students to be able to not, not only direct their knowledge, but understand how to transfer it as well. And, you know, agency isn't um, static. It has to be active. It has to be dynamic. Um, but students also have to learn what that looks like and how to do that. Because before they can begin to like co-author their experiences alongside their teachers and other community members, they must know first how to activate their own agency. And so it's all about ability and will to influence the world around them. And that is learned behavior. And it's not something that only some kids can do, or it's not something that's very zip code specific. This is one of those, like many things, where each student can have a journey with it. And that journey means that it's going to be personalized. Um, and then the same is true for safety and belonging. These are just like some basic principles that not only do students, but parents and teachers expect when they walk into a school building every day. However, we've seen like such a disruption in, in our school systems. And so that is very much on the top of parents' mind. And when I thought it was thinking about, uh, you know, just learning agency and safety and belonging, it reminded me of like in the South African culture, um, they say to each other when they see each other, Sawabona, and that means I see you. And then the response is Sakona, which means I am here. And that means that until you see me, I do not exist. And but when you do see me, you bring me into existence. And so that all is wrapped around that sense of belonging. Too often, we're choosing not to see our students or we're, we're choosing not to see our teachers because we're lumping people into the same spaces and not creating safe spaces and brave spaces for them. So how do we, re how might we reinforce listening as a leadership strategy? How might we use liberatory design to really understand the spaces where students don't feel safe, where they don't feel like they belong, how do we get to a space of saying, I love you enough to bring you into the room, I respect your experiences, and I'm curious about who you are. And this then begins to lend itself to social capital and the importance of not removing the students' communities from them. Because too often when we talk about social capital, I'm like, oh, it's all about who students know and who knows them. And that's great. And that's true. But students are already coming with a community that, you know, really means something to them, their family and other community members that they personally know that sometimes we just discount. And so Julia Freeland Fisher talks a lot about that um, and has done a lot of studies around like relationship mapping and how it has to be active and how it has to, you know, occur every single year or, you know, just consistently throughout. It's not something you do one time. Um, and then how does that lead then to a purpose mindset and difference making? Um, Tom has talked to um, our friends, Tim Klein and Dr. Bell Lang around like this interconnectedness of all of the previous points of like social capital and safety and belonging. And just that, how do we move from a performance mindset to a more purpose-driven mindset mindset? And what does that do? And how does that play into this notion of we versus me, which is really prevalent in not only their, their um, research, but also when we went to Paul Quinn College, a historically Black college in Dallas, Texas, that is exactly what their model is all about, that we versus me, that we're something more than ourselves and that our community um, plays an important role into our education. And Rebecca, I was turn over to you to think about teacher pipeline. 
No problem. I just want to appreciate that we are getting lots of great comments in chat. We are going through these trends very quickly so that we'll have time for discussion. So just please do activate yourself in chat and respond to that and share these wonderful resources that are continuing to do to be shared. Teacher pipeline, I think we recognize that um, we've definitely had a shortage. It's not necessarily new, but it's certainly increased. We've had some exiting the profession, certainly since the pandemic. But we also recognize that the cost of living and ability to support a family. So with that need, we've seen um, some responses. And one of those is just restructuring the role of what is an educator and what does that look like with the learners. And some organizations are focusing on extending the reach of what we would refer to as excellent teachers and their teams to reach more learners. And some of that is happening within teams. An example of this would be the next education workforce with Arizona State University and the Opportunity Culture Organization, where teams have different expertise, but they still share a roster of students. And in some cases, those students may have days where they are learning in different cohorts with different teachers based on learner needs. So really restructuring what that looks like day to day, as well as professional learning to support those teams. And some of that's related to what we're referencing or seeing is grow your own teacher development programs that have exploded after the pandemic. Um, some of those show up as high school apprentice models, and some of those are showing up as staff development. So an example of that in St. Vrain, school district is the P-Teach, sometimes referred to UC P-Tech, they're calling this P-Teach, which is working with neighboring universities to start high school learners on a path to education and really get them started and giving them some examples to see what that looks like before they make those choices. Lindsay Unified School District, long referenced by us um, for their personalized learning school model, was able to turn the revised TIF grant into a grow your own structure where they're taking paraprofessionals and, and high school students as well as educators and putting them in a pipeline to become credentialed. So growing their own, who know their learning model, who've experienced it. So another example of ways to respond to that teacher pipeline. Also seeing an increase in virtual training. Programs in the metaverse, you'll hear a little bit more about that, I'm sure, with Nate. But like an example of that would be the Northern Illinois University in the way that they are um, increasing access to build teacher pipelines based on their interest and to provide more authentic experiences. Also, next generation professional learning such um, as micro-credentials provided by Digital Promise, are op offering competency-based graduate programs to provide more personalized and probably more relevant experiences for educators to develop their practice. So really exciting new opportunities coming up to build that. I'm sure some of you will share more in chat that you may know of that we could all benefit from hearing, as well as a look at way we do policy. Several states, including um, Arizona, Idaho, and Oklahoma took actions to help fill teacher shortages, but one of the ones we're going to highlight today is at the Indiana Charter Teacher Law, which is a very new type of policy around chartered teachers, allowing parents to enter directly into agreements with public school teachers to provide customized learning experiences. Teachers retain their state benefits and their district salary, and they also then are able to provide improvements um, and training and licensing flexibility to help with that adjunct teacher support. So really nice pipelines and to build that and also a new way to access direct supports. We look forward to hearing more on that if you have more to offer. Yeah, and I'm going to pause this just for a moment because like I said, I want this to be very conversational. And so I'm going to open up um, the floor for any questions or comments. So please feel free to unmute or you can raise your hand and we'll call on you. 
um, just so everybody's not talking at once. But like Rebecca said, there's lots of great comments and questions that are happening in the chat. So if anyone would like to surface those out loud, we invite you to do so now. I'm, I'd love to have Paul Kim um, mention some of the innovative models that he he's highlighting. Many of those innovative models um, are, uh, as Rebecca described, restructuring the way uh, schools are staffed and organized. Um, a great example of that, as I spent last week with 18 uh, North Carolina school districts, um, which are working collaboratively around new tech pathways. Um, and this is really going to be an exciting experiment of teaming, not just inside a school, but teaming across the state uh, to collaboratively support learning in, um, in pathways that currently don't exist. So an exciting way to both reconceptualize learning models and staffing models and do it as a, as a collaborative of districts across the state and supported by both state partners and uh, state policy and uh, some state funding. And Nate, there's a question in here about how you're piloting um, what you shared. Yeah, so just to, to clarify for Indiana, that is a, we're, we are not piloting it. The Indiana, is, that's just news that's out there is that they are working on developing legislation that would potentially empower um, individual teachers to be chartered, which means they would get funding from the state, but yet work with individual parents, et cetera, to, to deliver a curriculum. Um, and it's a, no one's done that yet. It's a, interesting. It has some uh, challenges associated with it, in my opinion, and also some real opportunities as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the next year um, in Indiana. Thank you. And Josh, I'm going to make some space for you um, as you were talking about in chat, just, you know, kind of some of your wonderings, if you want to come off mute and share those and um, I think that my most important wondering in my mind um, and my heart right now at the beginning of 2023 is about how we move beyond hashtag future ready to hashtag shaping the future and everything that that entails. How do we build solutionaries? How do we build a, ma a mapping mindset? How do we build um, a sense of being a good ancestor? These are all the things that are on my mind right now. Um, and that I think we need to up our game beyond just student-driven learning and real-world challenges. We really got to think about how we train kids um, to um, be good ancestors for their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids as we go forward. Susan, that micro school in North Carolina, it sounds super cool. We, we love hearing about entrepreneurial experiences for young people. Um, so I, I'm not coming from the academic background, but I have spent probably the last two years really digging into what it what informs organizing. Um, if I was, you know, using a um, um, who would be the low hanging fruit, it would likely be um, adults of any size, any education um, who um, who want to increase their choices and think entrepreneurial about how they access um, resources and co-create um, outcomes. It's like, it's one thing for me to say, I have agency, but if I, if I go out here with the current paradigm, then, you know, I'm going to get knocked down. And so it's, it, I actually start out by um, linking physical fitness and how we move in our body 
uh, to understanding and and actually experiencing negotiation in a new way. Super appreciate your leadership in creating a micro school. Um, we're seeing some of this um, around the country. I guess we'd love to see even more uh, micro school leadership. Tim also shared uh, from um, the Transcend and the Canopy Project is another great place to see a catalog of, uh, of folks that are engaged in new school development. But let's let's turn our attention to parent engagement, another um, interesting post-pandemic topic. Parent engagement has made some changes, obviously, with um, the pandemic. We certainly involve them, and there is resulting consequence and benefits of that as well, which has been wonderful for us to grow. Um, we have seen an increase in the role of outside advisor um, and what some organizations may even call an academic advisor, uh, popping up to support K-12 and even higher ed. Reschool model out of Colorado um, calls this a learner advocate, and they're focused on helping families and the students support their learning goals, as well as access educational resources and address barriers that impact their learning and find resources to help support them. So really nice to have an outside folks that navigate that piece. Um, in addition to that, we're seeing an increase in microgrants for teach for families and parents to continue to grow in popularity. Um, some of that is even in Indiana and Idaho, they've invested as much as 75 million in microgrants and scholarships to provide students with tutoring um, devices, connections, other resources. So an increase in that, and we can post some sites to tell you, oh good, you already got the Excel ed. Thank you, Shawnee. So we've seen a rise in those opportunities. Um, I know Shawnee has more to share. Yeah, no, thanks, Rebecca. Um, definitely a rise. Parents, like we talked about earlier, was able to see firsthand um, the educational experiences that students were having, and they weren't always happy. Um, and so they really start to exert their power. Um, and so parent engagement no longer became a blind spot um, for schools. It was no longer something that they could ignore. And um, a group in the Oakland area called the Oakland Reach really like harnessed the power and, and pivoted from parent engagement to parent power. Um, you know, we often realize, obviously, you know, the families at the core of the students learning, but we don't always bring them in. And Oakland, the Oakland Reach really took the time to craft experiences that made parents feel included. Um, so they created the Oakland Reach Virtual Hub, which is a virtual support network for the whole family. And then they also created a family advocacy fellowship where today about 450 parents have gone through. And so now because um, they, they really brought parents into the schools, into the conversations, the board meetings are packed with parents um, who are truly invested in their child's learning. And because now they feel like they have a roadmap and they truly have a voice and that they have power uh, within the Oakland um, school districts. And so when parents aren't aware and when they're not included, then that's what starts to create these equity gaps because some students get some resources, others don't, and parents don't always know what they don't know um, until it's too late and, it, and they can't necessarily make a pivot in their child's education. So this it, it was just a, it's just a good time to remember that we need to move away from being prescriptive when we talk about parent engagement and truly personalize it to the communities in which our students live and really apply that liberatory design approach and really focus on the noticing and the reflecting um, so that all voices are at the table. Feels to me like we're at a sort of a midpoint of a 40-year transition 
from courses and grades and degrees to skills and uh, and credentials and learner records is the is the primary way that we uh, communicate human capability. Um, so there, there's a lot of movement, both um, in formal education, but also in, in workforce to define learning goals. Um, uh, there's a picture on the right side there of the durable skills framework from America Succeeds or a pandemic project that they launched to name valuable skills um, and both a lot of school districts and um, higher education programs and employers are are paying attention to that framework. Um, we've been working with uh, XQ on their student performance framework, another example of trying to more specifically name uh, valuable knowledge, skills, and dispositions, uh, and then begin to think about how to, how to credential it. Um, Credly and Canvas credentials are examples of badging platforms that are uh, have been widely used in, in the post-secondary space. We're starting to see them show up more frequently in higher education and even in high schools. Um, our sense is that by the end of the decade, we'll, uh, we'll see courses and grades recede into the background and that um, the, the credentials and uh, that ride in learner records will uh, in many places become a, a primary communication device. We do think state policy is gonna be critical. We, uh, our, our hunch is that states could be the leading actor in, um, in defining and adopting learner um, and uh, learning and employment records. We were pleased that uh, last fall, North Dakota took a big step and defined a, a credential wallet. Um, we're seeing other um, some leadership from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on this front uh, as well. Our friends at the Mastery Transcript Consortium have not only been a leader in the transcript space, but uh, are also starting a learner record. So. Um, this is going to be a, a, a long-term shift to skills and credentials and learner records. Uh, it won't be easy. I think most of us will spend the rest of our careers in a both-and world where we're tracking courses and grades as well as credentials and records. Uh, so strap in for the, uh, the long haul on this one. Uh, just a, a couple of thoughts on accelerated pathways. Um, Early college and P-TECH, these models that uh, allow high school students to earn um, an associate degree while they're in high school, they've been around for 20 years, um, but we anticipate uh, a renewed growth trajectory um, for a variety of reasons. Um, one is uh, the Gates Foundation recently launched Accelerate Ed, uh, a national initiative to promote AA by the 13th year. And so there's um, a, a dozen networks nationally that are sort of taking an updated approach to uh, early college. Jobs for the future, uh, jff.org is taking a, a bigger leadership role on P-TECH. And uh, we know that Texas, who already has more early college in P-TECH than, than any other state, is, um, is going to double down and increase the uh, the number of p-techs p-tech just takes 
early college and adds work experience and the potential for high-tech employment to the model. So a great example of a sort of the next-gen CTE pathway. And then out in workforce, we're really interested in the higher train deploy sector that was launched about two years ago. Um, this is where college graduates um, can receive tech and team training and uh, step into high wage employment. We think that higher train deploy sector is going to move down and connect with with P-Tech and early college and create a, a real important new earn and learn ladder that for a number of young people will replace uh, traditional uh, post-secondary pathways. And speaking of which, um, in, in higher education, uh, we're seeing um, lots of um, lots of movement, lower enrollment, kids report lower engagement. Um, every year we're seeing a few hundred colleges closing, we're seeing colleges trim majors. This is not true at the selectives though, the selectives are getting record enrollment. So there's really a, a have and have not um, playing out in, in higher education today. Um, we see the most productive work in in uh, colleges paying attention to pathways really trying to be intentional about linking experiences to opportunity um one of the most important announcements uh, that that sort of went under the radar screen in the last few weeks was that asu announced this work plus initiative which is dramatically uh, going to expand work opportunities um, and, and degree relevant work opportunities for young people uh, in the ASU system. This could make it the biggest work college in the in the world. Um, it's our sense that this is a, a really important development. Um, and and then in terms of uh, new productive models, um, we always appreciate uh, Paul LeBlanc's leadership at Southern New Hampshire. He had two pandemic books that came out that we recently reviewed. Um, the first was Students First. Um, that's just, it's probably the best description of competency-based um, higher education that has been written. So uh, check that out. Uh, but it's a, a really turbulent time in higher education and one where there's sort of a new opening for uh, some new models. I think we'll see more of that this year. Anything happening in tech? All right. Well, there there is a lot happening. Uh, I wanted to point out just just a couple things, and and I do put a few different companies here, and that's in no way endorsing them as the best companies out there. It's just meant to be used as an example. Um, so so despite the 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 uh, FTX crash and then everyone's uh, disillusionment with cryptocurrency, uh, the concept of Web three is continuing to march along at a rapid rate, and it and and it is being built as a strong foundation of the next iteration of web. Um, and, and, and all this means is that it's going to be a decentralized learning environment. So instead of being owned by large corporations, Web3 allows distributed mechanisms. Um, and what that does and, and how it impacts learning is that um, uh, within the Web3 ecosystem is that, that learners will have more agency. So it will be easier to connect those who want to learn with those who can help them learn. And so that one-to-one -one connection will become much easier in a Web3 ecosystem. And then the second thing that's really important for young people is this idea of ownership, is that it'll be easier and easier to own things that you create online 
and actually get rewards for owning those things if they're shared by others. And an example would be teachers pay teachers. Educators now might jump onto that platform, but a significant percentage of teachers pay teachers revenue goes back to teachers pay teachers rather than the individual educators. So, so a, a Web3 ecosystem allows for much more direct compensation directly to those who produce, whether it's a learner or a teacher. So decentralized learning. Uh, if you want to know more about that, Ed3DAO is the place to go for learning about how um, Web3 is going to implement or, or impact education. So I suggest you go and join that community. Uh, metaverses, uh, again, despite the at least the not so attractive launch of uh, Meta's metaverse, uh, meaning it didn't take off as fast as uh, as the owners had hoped. Uh, there is a lot going on in metaverse and more and more young people are are in the metaverse for gaming and things like that. And so how education is going to accommodate that. Stemuli is a leader in this area and is really thinking about how learning, especially around job related skills, uh, is uh, taught to young people in the metaverse. So that's something to pay attention to. And then the last one, Tom alluded to it, but Learner wallets are going to become more and more important. We're going to have cradle to grave documentation of our learning uh, and our employment through all sorts of learner records and learner wallets, uh, whether it's the MIT Open Wallet, uh, LearnCard, Territorium. There's a bunch of different companies that are, that are working on this. And I think learners are going to have multiple wallets uh, and multiple places to store these pieces. So it's not going to be one size fits all. So that's Web3. Everyone's ignoring Web3 right now because of generative AI and ChatGPT. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the obvious one uh, is ChatGPT, which has blown up every single newsfeed over the last month and a half and, and worried most English teachers uh, across the universe. And so um, with, with ChatGPT, it, it's just brought something that's that has been in development out to an easy public use. Um, a survey, Kate Tom sent me an, e an email this morning that a survey said that 30% of college students in a recent survey are using it for written assignments. And so there is no doubt that everybody's using it. And of course, that then prol proliferates the race for how do you detect students who have used chat GPT? And so that will be an ongoing trend. I think, I think our belief at Getting Smart is let's embrace the technology and figure out how it can help all learners learn better in more innovative ways. So that's just one portion of AI. So I just want to talk about three other pieces to close it off is that outside of just creation, there's design. Uh, and I've been piloting last week or so uh, this, uh, this company called Knowledge. And Knowledge, you put in a video or a document and it, and it generates an entire learning module for you. So you imagine how disruptive that is to curriculum design. If that, that can happen for five minutes, you put in a 25-minute video it generates a learning module that can be embedded in your learning management system. So super interesting around how do you create bare bones skeletons that then um, talented educators can revise and modify and make more localized. Uh, third thing is around professional learning. Uh, about a year ago, uh, Athena came out with their AI driven coach. So how do you help prompt teachers to um, uh, reflect on their own teaching and, and get better based on uh, a set of uh, a models that are incorporated into the platform. So that's going to be interesting to see. Uh, and then the last one's around assessment is especially in uh, assessments that are maybe written or looking for particular facts or things like that. Uh, Cogni is, is an example of a company that's playing around uh, with assessment. The power behind all of these things is it should make more feedback go to students and more opportunities for human educators to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, small group conversations and build those human connections and find those really important or, or problems and challenges to spot that they don't currently have time for because they're spending a lot of time doing things that AI might be able to do for them. 
So it's not to eliminate teachers. It's not to eliminate humans. It's to allow us to spend time on things that we're good at uh, and that are more important for young people. That's my technology pitch for today to close us off. Shani, back to you. Thank you. Um, so as we think about what are the other trends that are missing, we named quite a few, but we know that you all are in all different communities and may have different needs. And so we're curious, what's, what's out there? What are we not talking about that we should be talking about? Susanna, if you want to come off mute, you're welcome. I invite you to because your point is valid. And I just want to know if you have any thoughts about why that might be or why that's really important for us to, to resurface and just continue to think about. Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me into the conversation and so many great things. And I think earlier on when you were talking a lot about the emotional connection and bringing in the humaning piece that that's, I mean, that we're headed that direction. I know that's part of this conversation, um, but what I'm, I'm hearing um, certainly around the Pacific Rim, California, and then across all the way to Japan is um, conversations around the wellness piece and the whole whole child mindset and also this the idea of um, a more harmonious approach to education that's harmonious amongst ourselves but also of course with the planet right and so I feel like that's something that is it's there and it's it's almost like it's this um, rainbow dream of every educator versus it being something that's real but I feel like it's a very real thing and a very real trend that I would love to learn more about and hear more examples of people doing this work along the way if you have them thanks. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for surfacing that sustainability piece, that green piece, because we we're, we talk a lot about relationships between the people and the AI, but you know, that the earth factor is definitely one that I know at Getting Smart, we feel um, very strongly about and, and are just as interested in exploring those pathways. I, I did, I love the way um, Susanna connected sort of a whole child, whole family, whole community approach to, to wellness, um, but also sustainability. And um, I, I think she well summarized the, the, the new, uh, the, the new post pandemic way that that many school and community leaders are approaching the work. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you, everyone, you know, as people are sharing and think and providing their wonderings you all are being really supportive by dropping resources in the chat so i invite everyone to check those out um are there is there anyone else that shawnee i just on you you mentioned sustainability i'll plug our our friends at the uh, green schools national network uh really a great example of a group of schools that are advancing full child education um, and sustainability, both in, in the curriculum and in school operations. Uh, so we appreciate that dual focus. Our, our sense is that every school leader in the world uh, will need to take up the sustainability agenda, if nothing else, just on the operations um, side. But um, we, we appreciate their early leadership and, and think this will become a, a real foreground issue for most school and community leaders in the second half of this decade. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely one that we need to keep pushing on. And and Joey, I see your comment in regards to the operationalizing the portion of a graduate. So I invite you to come on and share. And, and then I also invite Re Rebecca, who I know has done a lot of work in the space, uh, really activating portrait of a graduates for systems um, to respond. 
Yeah, thank you, uh, Shani. That I think uh, Susanna's comment around um, SEL and, and the prevalence and importance of SEL across K-12 brought that thought to mind, right? We're hearing from both school leaders and teachers. They might have done this work in creating the portrait for graduate. In a less ideal scenario, that portrait is sitting on the wall. So how do you bring it into the classroom? And for our, the larger districts that we're hearing from, call it five, ten, 10,000 plus, it seems to be more and more challenging because they're, they're, the, the weight of everything they're carrying is heavy and it feels like it's one more thing. And how do they balance the, the, the academic standards, whatever they may be at the state, region, district, classroom level, and these global competencies? And, and the tension exists in, in, a, in a more, uh, when you're shifting from that traditional industrial model into more learner-led, project-based, competency-based. That's a big shift. And so what we're seeing is when a school district says, great, we're going in this direction, that's where the tension lies, both in instructional design, technology to support it, buy-in of stakeholders, particularly parents, when, when, they, when they might not comprehend or understand. So a lot to say there, but that's what came to mind. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely, Rebecca. I'm not surprised that Joey captured a lot of the things that I would highlight. I would just say that the instructional model um, is definitely the how. I mean, we often will do, do spend time on the what and the why with the competencies and the portrait of graduate and why it's important, but we don't take the time to unpack how that changes instruction day to day and what that looks like in different grade spans. So without clarity, that just adds stress because there's an expectation and a will, but not really necessarily a way to know how to do that. And what's exciting about what the portrait of graduate is occurring across the system, across the country, is people are beginning to unpack what that looks like. What are look for's for early ed? What are look for's for middle school and high school? And what are ways that we can rally around that for a while until our system's ready to talk about scoring in a way that's different, not static? Because we can do harm when we set up rubrics along this, this concept or a progression, and it can have a nature that feels like a static label like grades can. So they need to be a different approach. And I think what's exciting about what's happening is that's actually inviting competency-based learning practices into systems without even knowing it and seeing what's really um, out there and available. It's exciting as it moves forward, but we can we can add some links to that. And I'm on my pedestal, so I probably <laughs> said enough for now. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. I, I knew, I mean, just from all of your great work that you've done with different systems that you would definitely have an opinion on it and we can definitely keep this conversation going. So uh, I know that Joey and Rebecca can continue to chat offline. So thanks, Joey, for surfacing that. And, and Norton, we're also curious to hear about the work that you're doing in Pittsburgh around the UN Sustainable Goals. I'm working with the Consortium for Public Education here in Pittsburgh, and we brought in, in the past, they worked with a local company, Covestro, which is a spinoff of Bayer, who has incorporated the UN Sustainable Goals as part of their own goal setting. And what we're trying to do is bring together a design challenge that was pre-COVID and bring it back, that will be a regional design challenge where each school district around the region will identify one or more UN sustainable goals that they can attack and relate to one of their own community resources and problems. This will start the spring and go through next year. We're hoping to have 15 to 20 school districts that will be working on that. Norton, thank you for your leadership in Pittsburgh. Before we close out, the, one of the last things that I'm truly interested in is Karen, if you want to come off mute, because you said one of your first graduate assignments was to, um, I think you said do an essay in ChatGPT and just, just if you could just give like a one minute um, thought about that experience. 
Thanks uh, for asking. I actually, I'm, I'm getting my PhD at Teachers College, but I work for the Center for Technology and School Change, working with uh, New York City teachers and teachers all over the world. In one of my graduate, I've finished with my courses, just working on my study, but this course caught me and it's using emerging technologies in both arts education, but also in core subject areas. And for the first assignment, she wants to know, she wants us to create a manifesto. I put manifest, but a manifesto using visuals, text to communicate our intentions for our own learning. But she says, I want you just to interact with ChatGPT so that you know about it, so that you begin to get to know about it. I am well-versed. I've been using it almost every day in some way or another, just to help understand. But um, I, I, so it's writing with ChatGPT um, and, and in whatever form we want. And I'm using the checker um, that somebody designed to see how much of what you just wrote is actually you and them. And I'm going to reflect that in the, manif in the manifesto. So yeah, it's just a very creative way of helping us to get started at, in, in a teacher's college, you know? Right. Yeah, no, thank you. And, you know, that's great that at that level, um, because we know teachers are coming into the classroom and so they'll need to understand and, and maybe don't always get those experiences. So that's really great. And like Rebecca said, you know, just a, a great way to like positively interact with the tool and start conversations. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for your leadership within the schools. Thank you for all you do in service to students. And thank you for being here today for the first town hall the year. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.